Let's pray. Oh God, we do praise you, O Lord, for your wonderful grace. As we come this morning, we know that we come not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done for us. Oh Lord, sometimes we come sort of kicking and screaming and wanting to do the things that we want to do, but we thank you, Lord, that your grace is greater than the stubbornness of our own hearts. And we thank you and praise you that you not only save us, but you continue to show that salvation as you sanctify us in our lives. We thank you for this time that we might sit before your word and hear it preached. And we pray that you would speak to us this day, that you would glorify yourself and strengthen your church through the words that we hear today. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, fellowship is one of those words that I think is oftentimes misunderstood in the church today. Maybe equal to that would be community. But uh, it seems like that we've sort of narrowed the definition of that word fellowship to mean social activities. Usually, at least for Presbyterians, it involves food and uh, even casual conversation as well. But uh, the problem is not that Christian social activities cannot be regarded as an expression of Christian fellowship, but I think Jerry Bridges put it well when he said, it is just that they are not true fellowship. They may, if entered entered into for the right purpose, contribute to fellowship, but in and of themselves, they are not fellowship. True fellowship is a deeper and a richer element of the Christian experience. And, and we see that in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.42, where it talks about distinguishing uh, marks of the church and in terms of the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And all of these things are fundamental components of the body life of a church. But anyway, Bridges goes on and in, 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 in to show that biblical fellowship is a relationship not an activity. Now, if you don't hear anything else, hear that, that. That fellowship, biblical fellowship, is a relationship, not an activity. It's who we are. It's not necessarily what we do. It is our shared life in Christ. So as I live in union with Christ, I have a relationship with Him. But because of that relationship with Him, then I also have a relationship with other believers as well. It's just an automatic thing that happens. And so because of that, then there is this sense in which we have uh, a common activities and beliefs. There's a unity in the truths of God's word. There is a partnership that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ in the goal of glorifying God and promoting the gospel of Christ both in the conversion of the lost and building up the church. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, that's not the case. When people come to churches, they don't come to a church you know, with that sense of, of fellowship or that unity in mind. It's more of a sense of sitting in the pew and going, I like this church because I like what the preacher says, or I like the worship music, or, you know, the people are nice, you know, whatever the reasons might be. And sometimes, you know, we come to a church because the activities fit our households well and it meets our needs. And so we come at it more from that perspective rather than working together and even sacrificing for the greater good of glorifying God. But we also see in that sense of of fellowship 
uh, a sharing of the communion with others and spiritual things to the end of bearing each, an- each other's burdens and encouraging one another in the faith. And also in sharing material possessions with others as they have need. Now, James, as he comes to our text today, he's sort of talking a little bit about that fellowship. He's not developing a systematic theology of fellowship, but he does focus on one of its leading evidences as he sort of returns to what he started talking about in chapter 1, verse 27, and that of caring for others out of a love for Christ. And that's part of what fellowship is. It's, it's bearing each other's burdens, and as we're going to see in verses 14 through 18, doing that through prayer in the life of the church. Now, I think it might be good for us as, uh, to ask ourselves, as we even think about Kirk of the Plains, uh, do we think of this church only in terms of what we can get out of it? Or do we think of it as a place that we come even to sacrifice sometimes the things that bring us pleasure and fulfill our own desires that we might minister to others? You know, the, the Christian life, contrary to what you hear so much out there in the culture, even in the church culture, the Christian life is not about me and Jesus, but it's about me and Jesus and Greg and Katie and Thomas and Randy and Tim, either one, you can pick your once one, or Zoe or whoever it might be. It is, it is that connectedness that we have with one another as well. And so James says that we are to care for one another uh, in, in the community, both spiritually and physically as well. And so we're going to look at the ways he talks about that. First of all, in verses 14 and 15, in praying for the sick. And then secondly, in praying for the congregation in verse 16. And then uh, he's going to give us a final admonition uh, and talking about effectual p- prayer or the power of prayer in verses 16 through 18 in the example of Elijah. So let's, let's work through these if we could. First, verse 14, is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, at first, this verse sounds very straightforward, but, you know, this is where this passage really begins to get hard. You know, because there's a lot of different pieces here that you can look at. You can interpret a lot of different ways. The oil that he's talking about, is that for medical purposes or does it have some other reason? You know, as you pray the prayer of faith, it says, and they will be healed. So what is that prayer of faith? And is that truly a a blanket statement that if you pray for somebody and you have just the right kind of faith or the right mixture or something, that they're automatically going to be healed. There's just a, a lot of different questions that come out of this text. And so this passage has been interpreted in all sorts of ways. The Roman Catholic Church make it teach their pseudo-sacrament of extreme unction or last rites in which the application of oil is given to a person by the priest as they're dying to prepare them for, for death. Now, I, something I, I thought about this week that I sort of regret um, as I think about preaching through James, there's actually a lot of different doctrines that the Catholic Church will draw from Scripture, and a lot of these come from the book of James, or several of them at least. I mean, not only this uh, uh, last rites in James 5.14, but even in James 2, as it talks about the relationship between faith and works. The Catholic Church will draw their teachings from that 
Or even in verse 16 where it talks about confessing your sins to another uh, will come the idea of confessing to the priest and stuff. So, you know, I, I sort of wish maybe I would have talked about those kind of things a, a little bit more. But anyway, but it's not just the Roman Catholics that take this and come out with their views. Even the Charismatics, of course, find support here for their miracle services of healing and the idea of, of expecting people to have a certain kind of faith that they might be healed. And then even us in the Reformed Church, you know, Calvin and other Reformed commentators uh, oftentimes see this as referring to the early church when the gifts of healing were still manifest, but see this not so much as a, a practice today. But I think as we look at this from a more straightforward approach, uh, we see how this ought to be applied to the church of every age. And I understand that there's a lot of difficulties here, and I am probably oversimplifying it, especially if you want to pull out some commentaries and read. But I didn't figure you want me to keep us here for hours and go through every argument. So I'll give you the highlights, okay? So let's just talk about, he says in verse 14, if you're sick, okay, now... Now, how sick do you have to be before you call the elders of the church? You know, if I have a head cold, does that count, you know, or do I have to you know, have something more long term? Well, it, it seems like from this passage that the circumstances are pretty serious. That these are grave circumstances. And I say that for several reasons. I mean, one, notice that the elders come to the person. You know, apparently the person is so sick, they're calling the elders to come to them rather than them coming to the elders. Secondly, the elders... Do the praying here. Now, that doesn't mean that the person is not able to pray, uh, but still, the elders are the ones that pray. And third, and I think most importantly, the term that James uses for sick indicates that it's either a prolonged or a very grave illness. Something very, very serious. And so, you call for the elders to come and pray. And notice uh, even uh, that in this passage, the contrast to Jesus uh, healings uh, in, in the Gospels and that which James is talking about. Um, you know, Jesus would oftentimes call the person that he was healed to, to believe, to have faith. But here, it is the elders that pray the prayer of faith. And so it's not really so much dependent upon the, the person, but the elders. And then finally, you know, as we think about the elders' prayers, uh, they are not asked to pray with the sick person as to pray over them. You know, this was very serious circumstances. So, so why are the elders called to pray? One, does that mean that if somebody is sick in our church that we're not supposed to pray for them? Well, obviously that's not the case. We are to pray for them. But, you know, we need to show our dependence upon the Lord at all times, but particularly in these uh, times, James is calling this person to trust in the Lord, but also in the communion of the saints. And what better way to do that than to call upon the elders as the leaders, as the shepherds, as the pastor of the church, and as a representative of the totality of the communion of saints to call, come and pray, and to help in a time of need. So, Really, when you're calling for the elder, it's, it's a sense of uh, sort of representing the body as a whole. So James is reminding us in these verses that the Christian life is a life of community. And so it is a sense in which uh, God calls or God tells them to call for the elders of the church. Now, God's elders are not called to be miracle workers. They don't possess or uh, profess to have the gift of healing. God has simply commanded the elders to pray. 
And not only to pray, but to anoint with oil. Now, as I said earlier, some people hold the view that the oil had some kind of medical value or, or benefit. And there is some indication in the New Testament that this could possibly be the case. I mean, you think about the Good Samaritan when he found the man alongside the road. We read in Luke 10:34 that the Good Samaritan, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So, you know, there may have been some sense of uh, a medical purpose there. Uh, Jesus, when he sends out the twelve to go and and uh, proclaim the gospel, uh, it, it gives an explanation after they return in Mark 6.13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and, and healed them. But the problem is, is that here in James, there's actually no indication of any medical use, okay? I mean, it's actually, the focus seems to be more upon prayer and the prayer of faith and what it is that, that God does. So, most likely, James is not talking about, you know, calling in your physician and taking prescribed medication. He is describing how the ministry of intercessory prayer is to be exercised in the case of believers who are ill. And, and as you look at the Old Testament particularly and the anointing of, of oil, uh, the fundamental significance of oil and anointing in Scripture in the Old Testament was is it was used as a symbol of the grace of God. So this was no doubt the reason why the oil was, was used in connection with miraculous healings in the New Testament. So even in, in uh, Mark 6.13 where it talks about the use of the oil, it says that they applied the oil and they healed them. It didn't necessarily say that the oil was some like magic potion or medicine that, that brought. So the oil was simply a symbol of the grace of God, which alone is the source and power of the healing for which prayer is offered. And so the oil is not to be regarded as essential, no pun intended there, or effectual in itself. Okay, uh, it's, It is something that just symbolizes what is going on spiritually. And so it says in verse 15, though, as that is done, as the elders come and they pray, you know, they put the oil on and then they pray over the person. It says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, the promise of healing is sort of attached or annexed to the prayer of faith. This seems to be an unconditional promise as if all such prayers will always be answered with healing. And like I said, so therefore some Christians will take it that when you pray for someone and they're not healed, the problem is that there's a lack of faith and that you, you need to uh, you know, believe more, have a different kind of faith. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that distinction is, but the, that the problem is a fact of faith. But we've got to be careful when you're looking at statements and make absolute statements to take them just in that way. I mean, think about... Um, Mark eleven twenty four, it says, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, that seems to say that if you believe that you're going to receive something in prayer, that you're going to get it. But that's not necessarily true. We know that not only from experience, but even as we look at scripture, you know, you look at Paul and he had the thorn in the flesh and he begged the Lord to take that away. And he believed and what was God's answer? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so just because we pray believing doesn't necessarily mean that we receive it. Uh, 
The point is that it depends upon the sovereign decision of God as to whether the thing asked for will be given. If God knows that it is good for us, he will give us that which we need. I think oftentimes if we knew the outcome of what we prayed for, it may humble us very much. And we may be very thankful that the Lord doesn't give us always what we ask for. He is our loving Father and He gives us what is good for us. So for that reason, the emphasis is placed on our responsibility for fervent prayer and an earnest looking to the promises of God, not on instant and automatic healing that might take place. The prayer offered in faith is simply the prayer which has its root in faith, in which we trust the Lord and His promise. It's not some special class of miracle working prayer that acts like magic. The fact is that God does not always heal those for whom his people pray in faith. I mean, a prime example of that is Paul uh, leaving uh, Trophimus sick in Miletus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul healed many people. He understood what it meant to have faith and to pray for their healing. And yet, Paul, uh, that did not happen in the case of Trophimus. You know, so our inward faith conviction is not the determining factor. God is sovereign. And even if you look back at James chapter 4, verse 15, where he talked about how we oftentimes approach the future and we can do it very presumptuously and we can just assume that we can make our plans and we can do whatever we want. But in verse 15, uh, we read, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. There's a sense of humility as we make plans for the future, as we pray that we do so, knowing that the Lord will give the answer that we need. But brothers and sisters, this does not mean that we ought to cower in prayer. We ought to call for the elders of the church if there is serious illness and have them lay, uh, put oil on the person and pray for them and, and trusting and believing that the Lord and what uh, God's will for that person is. But then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I think we've got to ask ourselves, what, you know, what about this relationship between forgiveness of sins and healing? What, what is that relationship? Is all physical malady connected with some personal sin? If we get sick, does that mean that we have sinned? And there are some Christians who would, would teach that. Un, unfortunately, uh, I experienced that one time when I was a, a teenager and, and I had a friend who had uh, all daughters and uh, he, his wife was expecting a son and uh, his son was stillborn. And of course, you can just imagine how crushed my friend was. And we had another Christian brother who held this view that if you are sick, it's because you sinned. And he walked in. And he said my friend's name and he said, what, have you, what sin have you committed that has caused this? Ah, oh, talking about devastating. But that's not what we see in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus is very clear to point out that this is not the case. I mean, think about the man who was born blind from birth uh, in John chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, Jesus uh, was passing by, it says, and as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he has been born blind? 
And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I'm not saying that there's never a correlation between our sin and our sickness. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But we cannot assume that just because someone has been ill that they are sick. But it is worth noting that there is... Um, that uh, as, as James talks about this, he does have something specific in mind. There is a link between forgiveness and healing. And that link between forgiveness and healing, perhaps, is in the fact that so often... It is on the sickbed that we engage in self-examination and we take account and we realize our sin and perhaps even that context that we desire to be made right with others. Especially if it's a serious illness, a person has a tendency to think about their life and it may be that they recount sins and where they need to confess that sin and be forgiven. And so James' line of thinking is probably something like this. That if you know that you've sinned, then let this be a time not only of physical healing, but of spiritual healing as well. And so as you think about those sins and you ask for forgiveness from the person, you will be forgiven, is what he's saying here. So that's praying for those that are sick in the congregation. But what about uh, others in the congregation as well? Well, look at verse 16. He says, as we... As we, as we come to verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, he's not talking about the sick. He's not talking about the elders. He's just talking about our relationship here in the congregation with each other. And notice that he, he doesn't say, Go confess your sins to, to, to somebody. You know, just grab somebody and, and tell them your sins. You know, like... Uh, he doesn't say, go confess your sins to the priest, for instance. And, and he doesn't say, you need to go to your small group and you need to talk about your sins with everybody there or other people's sins, you know, and, and sort of a gossip. What James is speaking of is a spirit of openness in the church that encourages the confession of failures and faults and sins. As a matter of fact, the word that James uses here is the confession of specific sins, not just personal sinfulness. You don't just say, well, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm sorry, I, sh I probably shouldn't have done that. You know, it's, it's really more of, I am so sorry, brother, that I spoke to you that way. I, I realized that I was being harsh. I was being unloving. Would you please forgive me uh, for that sin? And I, I would say this to, to parents of kids don't let your kids get away with just saying, I'm sorry. Have them say to one another, have them confess the specific sins that they have committed. I am so sorry that I stole that toy from you. And then have them ask for forgiveness. If they say, I'm sorry, nothing's been reconciled. Nothing's been dealt with. But if you say, I sinned against you in this specific way, and then they say, will you please forgive me? There can be forgiveness granted and there can be reconciliation in that relationship. And that needs to be our practice as a church as well. As we sin against one another, that we do confess our sins. Because it is the duty of a believer 
uh, to confess our sins. And it's also, as we do that, that's a powerful deterrent to sin in the church if there is that sense of openness. I know many churches that they sort of build that into the fabric of who they are as a church. They have processes and stuff. And if you've heard of uh, peacemaking ministries, you know, they actually seek to foster that in a church body. And they have practices and, you know, biblical practices and stuff that they encourage churches to put in place so that there might be that openness to, to one another. But even as we look at this, as straightforward as this text is to go, if I sin against someone, to go and confess and to pray with them, it's really easy to misunderstand this. Uh, James is not telling us to confess our sins to each and you know each to each other each and every time we sin against one another. Nor is he telling us to confess our sins to the entire church. You know I, I've run into cases where a Christian man will walk up to a woman after church and he'll say, you know, last week when you wore that red dress, I just have to confess to you I was lusting after you. Now, can you imagine how awkward that would be if you were that, that poor woman? But, you know, that's, that's what he does. Or maybe someone who's in a prayer meeting and they confess that they struggle with resentment towards those in the church that have wealth because they've had to struggle financially all their life. And so they just confess it to, to everybody. You know, I guess it's a... Um, yeah, anyway, so that's what they do. But, you know, so as Christians, we do struggle with sin and we do offend one another. and We do need to address the sins that we have, but we need to do so biblically and wisely as well. And a good rule of thumb is this. To confess, confession should always be as wide as the sin. Confession should always be as wide as the sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you've sinned secretly and the person that you sinned against is unaware of the sin, like the lady in the red dress, then you should confess that sin only to God. You know, only to God. Now, on the other hand, if you have sinned against someone and they are aware of it, then you need to not only confess that sin to God, but you also need to go and confess that sin to the person you have wronged. And then, if we have sinned publicly then we should confess that sin to God and we should confess that sin publicly. That may be a church discipline case where someone has rebelled, maybe been excommunicated from the church, repented of their sin, come back, they confess that sin, they repent, and they're restored as someone in the church. But, but likewise, what that means is then, if we, we need to not only confess our sins to others, but if someone comes and confesses to us, we must be willing to forgive them of their sins and to be restored. There's, there's probably no reality more contradictory to what God is doing in the church than divisions between brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? There's probably nothing more co contrary than to see these divisions, to see these groups... And I pray even now that God would, would uh, deliver us, or deliver us, that he would protect us, that's the word I'm looking for, that he would protect us from such divisions in the church. I pray for unity for our congregation a lot. You know, that we would have that oneness of mind. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean we won't sin against one another. But I pray that we'll have that sense of openness so we can confess that. And that we won't fraction and break up into small groups. And this group is against that group. And this person's gossiping against that person. 
and stuff because there's probably nothing more contradictory to what Christ is doing. That's why the, the letter to the Corinthians was such an abomination to think that there were churches that were dividing themselves up into these small groups. And James is saying, if that's the case in your instance, pray that, you, that it would be remedied. So he says, pray for one another. But uh, there's, there's nothing probably in the church more that draws us together than as we pray for one another. And, and this week I read of a pastor who was telling about when he was a little boy in the church. And this pastor, when he was a little boy, had a pastor. And that pastor that he had, whenever he had sort of a standing practice, that whenever he found out that two people in the church were at odds with one another, he would call those two people to his office or to his study. And he would, say, and he would uh, ask them if they would both come and they would kneel on his floor and if they would pray together. And, and the pastor who was telling this story, he said, in many, many times, I saw that became the root of not only a restored relationship, but a strengthening relationship where those people loved one another more than they had ever loved one another because they had confessed to one another and they had prayed for one another and they had been restored. You know, brothers and sisters, I, what I want you to see is we need to pray for one another. Not only when we're at odds, not only when we're confessing our sins, but we need to pray for one another. And so in the, in the announcement sheet, that section on prayer, as you utilize that section on prayer in the week, you are living in fellowship. You are living in fellowship. Uh, if you are not utilizing the weekly prayer sheet, you are not living in fellowship. You know, or you're missing out on that aspect of fellowship. I'm not saying that like I'm here to beat you over the head, but I want you to know that's a privilege. That is a privilege to lift one another up in prayer. And not only in our body, but praying for other churches, praying for missionaries around the world. And as we do that, we are exercising that fellowship. Now James says, you must do this, confess your sins and pray to one another that you may be healed. Now the word for healing here can be physical healing or it can be spiritual healing. And when we confess our sins to one another, obviously there is a sense of sort of a spiritual healing. There is a sense in which we can confess our sins, we can be forgiven, and there can be reconciliation. And there is a sense of great spiritual health, not only for those two people, but for the body as well. But also, I would suggest to you that I think there could be a component of physical healing here as well. And like I said before, just because you're ill doesn't mean you sin. But sometimes when we're ill, physically, it is because of sin. I mean, think about those times when you've been depressed. Think about those times when you've been consumed by worry. And oftentimes that affects you physically. And so if those things are caused by unconfessed sin, then when you come and you confess that sin to each other and you are reconciled, there is a sense in which there can also be physical healing as well because you're no longer carrying that load. And so that you may be healed. God is, is so good. But he knows that we are a people that wrestle with prayer. We, we struggle. I wish I could say we wrestled in prayer. And, and I think we, some of us do. But others really struggle to pray. And so James, being the pastor he is, he understands that. So he says, let me give you the example of Elijah. 
And he says in verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, brothers and sisters, prayer has been a strong emphasis throughout James. I mean, if you don't believe me, go back and just sort of read through the letter. So it's not surprising as we come to the end that he gives this emphasis on prayer. Uh, and he says, if I might quote this in the King James, he goes, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But my question for us today is this, is do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? You see, James urges us to consider the example of the prophet Elijah. And, and there's no doubt about Elijah praying that it accomplished much. He prayed and there was no rain. He prayed again and then there was rain. But the key thing is that he prayed. And that is the key thing for us. Are we praying? And I think oftentimes we have a tendency to dismiss examples like Elijah and others who were mighty in prayer. And we think that they were super saints and their prayer was in some way different than the prayers that, that we pray. But James reminds us that Elijah was made out of the same stuff as the rest of us as you look at verse 15. He says that he was a man with a nature like ours. And so at times, if you read the story of Elijah, and go back to 1 Kings, if you would, and, and read that, you see that he so indulged his fears that he ran away. Or he despaired of life. Or he even petitioned God to take his life in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 11. You see, Elijah was a man like us. He had the same passions as the rest of us. He served from a position of weakness. You know, uh, Ahab and Jezebel were seeking to, to kill him. Uh, he uh, felt the world's powers coming against him. He was prone to despair. He didn't see himself as worthy. You know, so we can pray like Elijah. We may feel weak and lonely. We may feel powers against us in prayer. Uh, we may... Uh, realize that we can't do it ourselves. But when we come to pray, we are acknowledging that there is another power greater than us that's invisible, and that is the power of our God. So the secret to his praying was not that he was Superman. The secret was that he prayed. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're struggling with. You know, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you feel like the relationship is too far gone and there's no way that that can be restored. And so what are we tempted to do? Well, we're very tempted to discount prayer and, and maybe to try to fix it ourselves or even just to give up completely. Or maybe you think my illness is just too far advanced. There's nothing that's going to happen if the elders come and they pray for me. But brothers and sisters, we must not discount prayer. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer. And James' point to us is very plain. No matter what life brings our way, you know, let's make sure that we don't forget to pray. I don't care if things are, are going bad in your life or they're going good in your life. He says pray. If someone is deathly ill and about to die, pray. 
If there is sin in the church, pray. And let's make sure that our praying is not merely mouthing words, but an earnest seeking after God and His will. And only then can we truly pray. You know, I think as we think about uh, this week and getting ready to leave this service, one of the, the things that we do is, is as we walk out that door is we take the gospel with us. And that's a gospel that we are to preach to our hearts every day of the week. And, and as we go ready to face that week, I hope you will go with a posture of prayer, but also go with these words on your mind as well from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? Let's bow our heads for just a moment and let's reflect upon the Word of God that we heard preached this morning. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your grace that you give to us. And you know that all of us vary in the degree to which we trust in you and, and place our faith in you. You know that oftentimes that we can struggle in our prayers to you to believe, especially in the face of circumstances that tell us quite the opposite from the promises that you give us in your word. But I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to grow in our trust and faith in you as we pray for others in the congregation Father, I pray that you would give us a, a holy boldness. And Lord, right now we may laugh at that. We may, for some, prayer may not be something that they do more than just saying grace before the meal. Uh, but Lord, for, for others, they may be great prayer warriors. But Lord, no matter where we are, we pray that you would cause us to grow. That really our faith would not be in prayer, but in the one that we pray to. That we would trust you that we would know you, and that God, that all that we do in our lives, that we could bring before you. And even, Father, we could pray proactively uh, for those that um, we, we know don't have needs, whether it be our children, whether it be our brothers and sisters in this congregation, that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would make us bold to share the gospel, whatever it might be. We pray, Lord, for an openness to confess our sins to one another and to love one another enough. Please, God, keep us from divisions and, and create within us a unity that comes only around the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And we ask these things, Lord, for your namesake, that as people look at Kirk of the Plains, that they wouldn't see a perfect church, but they would see a church that understands the grace of God and rests wholly upon that. We thank you, O Lord, and pray these things in your name. Amen.